This is Warning Radio with Dr. Jonathan Hansen, founder and president of World Ministries International, a non-denominational end times ministry dedicated to fulfilling a divine commission to trumpet forth warnings from God concerning the imminent second coming of Christ and the impending judgment of God upon the ungodly. God has sent Dr. Hansen to many nations of the world with a solemn warning to the political and religious leaders and citizenry to repent of their sinfulness and wickedness or face the catastrophic judgments that will soon be unleashed upon the unbelieving world. Listen now to the warnings of our compassionate and merciful Creator conveyed through His faithful prophetic spokesman, the host of Warning Radio, Dr. Jonathan Hansen. This is Dr. Jonathan Hansen. I want to welcome you to our Warning Radio program. Today, one of my assistant pastors, Ty Gouldstrom, We'll be speaking a message for you, taking off the grave clothes. He spoke this message July 10, 2004, when I was on a mission trip out of the country. So sit back and enjoy this message by Ty Grostrom, speaking for my staff service at World Ministries International. Thank you, Pastor Tom, for being transparent. That was a good word ministered to me. You know, when it comes down to the end, it's really about how we loved God and how we loved one another. Amen. I was reminded when Pastor Tom was speaking about some of the last words that Jesus had to Peter. It was, love my sheep. Love them. That message, that's not a commission that was exclusively for Peter. That's really the commission that he has given each of us. Go now and love. We sang it today, that we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. And that's possible only because... The love we're talking about is the agape love of Jesus Christ. We're not talking about a soulish love. We're not talking about a human love. We're talking about the agape love of Jesus Christ. And the only reason that we can say we love the Lord Jesus Christ and we love one another is because He first loved us. Because now we have received His love, we have love to give. Amen? Amen. Remember several years ago I preached a sermon. And the text was out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says, therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. See, we can hear about the events of Jesus' life. We can read it. We can study it. But that's not knowing him according to the Holy Spirit. And in the same way, when we become Christians in the body of Christ, we don't look after one another according to the flesh. One thing that you all are very familiar with is when you go out into the world, people look at you according to the flesh. They look at you about what you can do for them. Amen? And that even carries over into our Christian walk. How many times do I find myself with my wife looking at her according to the flesh? Looking at how she can meet my needs. But when you flow in the Holy Spirit, when you look at relationships according to the Holy Spirit, then you see what you can do to provide their needs. Knowing that Jesus will provide your needs. Amen? That's the agape love of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. And so we're commissioned to go and to love one another and to look at each other according to the Holy Spirit. The worship today was beautiful. It was so sweet. I was just so, I don't know how to describe it with human terms, but I was just so electrified. 
I just felt that tight, tight communion with the Lord. You know what made it sweet? The words were sweet and the music was sweet. But what was sweet is the Holy Spirit made it sweet. Because we were worshiping in spirit and in truth. Praise the Lord. That's what made it sweet. We were worshiping the way that Jesus wants us to worship. We're not worshiping based on location because we're here. We're worshiping Him in the Holy Spirit. And that's the kind of worshipers that He seeks and desires. That's what made it sweet. Because you were worshiping in spirit and in truth. Amen. Well, Jehovah Shema. The Lord is here. How many people went to their home group? Let me see your hands. So when I say Jehovah Shema, oh, some people are like, oh, he's not going to call me out now, is he? <laughs> Jehovah Shema, the Lord is right here. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is my what? My peace. Jehovah Jireh, my provider. Jehovah Sid's canoe. Uh-oh, look at the notes quick. My righteousness. Praise the Lord. That's all I can remember, so I should keep, go right back onto my sermon here. <laughs> yeah, take your notes. Praise the Lord. Well, this is going to be a, a message that I believe is going to be useful to us today, but I think it's something that's going to be useful to you in the future. Because it's really about who Jesus Christ is. It's going to look at Jesus Christ through the Old Testament and the fulfillment in the New Testament. Remember when I was a very young Christian, I had a dear friend that I met at Cedar Park Church, Steve Severin, he was in my wedding. And I was a bit confused because I read all the Old Testament, all the sacrifices, and I just didn't understand it. And I can still remember the day I was on the phone, I remember exactly the phone, the room I was in, and I, I remember talking to Steve and saying, Steve, what is up with all this Old Testament blood? Yeah, have you ever been there as a, as a young Christian? What is up with the shed, all these slaughtering of animals? And I just didn't understand it. But you know what it comes down to? It comes down to one simple verse. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. And the beautiful thing is, as you grow in your Christian faith, as you grow in the knowledge of the Word of God, in everything in the Old Testament, you see the image of Jesus Christ. That is what's so beautiful. That's why it's so fun to celebrate the feasts. Because they're all about Jesus Christ. And so when people say to you about the feast, they say, wasn't that nailed to the cross? You say, yes, Jesus was nailed to the cross. But the whole story of redemption is told in the festivals, in the feasts of God. And there's no better way to teach your children, to teach people, to communicate the gospel to the feast. The feasts are all about Jesus. And we are called to tell people about Jesus. And the festivals, the feasts of God are such a beautiful thing. So today we're going to start... Our keynote text will be 2 Samuel chapter 21. You know, in the old days, the days of old, the Israelites gave sin offerings. Are you with me? The Israelites had to give sin offerings and they had to give guilt offerings to God. A sin offering was for them to be given when they sinned against God, while a guilt offering was not just for sins they committed to God, but also to compensate neighbors when they hurt them in different ways. Jesus has become our sacrifice for all the religious services and offerings of the Old Testament. Amen? Jesus has become our sacrifice for all the religious services and offerings of the Old Testament. However, our lives of faith are made first in our relationship with God and secondly in our relationship with our neighbors. 
That's why even after God forgives us through Jesus, we can receive God's blessing only when we improve our relationships with our neighbors. As a matter of introduction, I'm just going to read a couple scriptures. Matthew chapter 5. Who have brought their sword today? Let me see your sword. Let me see the sword. Bring up that sword. Amen. You know, it's like the, in the old days, the uh, knights of the round table. You know, at the end, they'd take their swords and put them together. Well, we're going to take our swords. We're not knights, but we are what? We are saints. We are ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And we have our swords, and together we're going to unite our swords together. Praise the Lord. Just like a knight would never go into a battle without a sword, a Christian should always have their weapon. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. Where are we at? Matthew chapter 5. Jehovah Makadesh. Is that another one? Praise the Lord. That's a good one. Okay, Matthew. Chapter 5. Verse 23 says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. When you look at the altar in the light of the New Testament, now that Jesus Christ is within us, we don't go to an altar to sacrifice, do we? Because Jesus Christ was sacrificed. So really when this verse says, when you're at the altar and before you give your gift, really it means wherever you're at. doesn't matter if you're at your house, at your business, at the church building, wherever you're at, if you remember that you have odds with a brother, you're to go to him. When? Tomorrow maybe? Next week? No, leave the gift. What's the gift? The sacrifice of praise. That's what you leave at the altar, isn't it? Before you pray, before you sing, before you do your Christian service, if there's odds of the brother, go and make amends. What does that mean? It means take care of your business. That doesn't mean that you can force that brother to forgive you or to reconcile with you. He's not talking about the brother. He's talking about you. He's talking about your responsibility. So before we offer our prayers, before we go to the service together, I tell you what, if you have odds of the brother and you know you have odds of the brother, Jesus can't hear you, can he? Because you violated scripture. Turn quickly to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to see how fast your fingers are today. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse number 9. Anyone who claims to be in the light, who is the light? Jesus Christ is the light. Anyone who claims to be in the light, anyone who claims to be in Jesus Christ, but hates his brother, is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. So the statement I read before these scripture verses was this. Our lives of faith are made first in our relationship with God and secondly in our relationship with our neighbors. That's why even after God forgives us through Jesus, we can receive God's blessing only when we improve our relationships with our neighbors. Amen? So you can come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. You can be born again. But much of that relationship, that increase in the relationship with God, will only come if you deal with the brother. That's why he says, before you come and increase relationship with me, before you come to the altar, before you pray, before you give your gift, before you give your tithe, before you give your time and your service, if there's odds of the brother, go first. What he's saying is, if you want to come to me and have an increased fellowship with me, it always goes through your brother. How can you say you love me and hate your brother? It's like the book of James says, how can salt water and fresh water be mixed? 
then it's not fresh or salt. It's something else. And so our relationship with God always goes through our brother and our sister. Amen? Now this includes our spouse. Amen? Oh my. This includes our spouse. So what that means, ladies and gentlemen, husband and wife, is if you have odds with your spouse, if you are angry with her or him, if you are bitter at him or her, then when you come to church and you pray and you sing and do all that stuff, God looks at it and says, that's a lot of stuff. Because he's still looking at you through the eyes of your anger and your bitterness and your resentment and your hatred. You say, well, I don't hate anyone. Remember what it said in Matthew, I think chapter 5? Even if you say to your brother or sister, you fool. What do you use that in context with? It was said in times of old, do not murder. When you gossip and slander against somebody, you say, well, it's, it's subtle. What you do is you're murdering them with your tongue. Amen? <laughs> Amen. That's the introduction. We'll start with point number one. This is a three-point sermon. I don't know if I've ever spoken a three-point sermon. <laughs> point number one says, atonement and compensation in the days of old. That's point number one. We'll start with 2 Samuel chapter 21. Okay, 2 Samuel chapter 21, starting in verse number one. During the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. Everyone say famine. There was a famine. So David sought the face of the Lord. What does that mean? That means when there's a problem, when there's a catastrophe in our life, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to seek the Lord. That reminds me of the story when Joshua was going up against Ai. And what happened? He was defeated. Remember what he did? He grumbled. Lord, why'd you bring us out here so we could be slaughtered by the enemy? Remember what the Lord said? This is a paraphrase. Joshua, close your mouth. There's sin in the camp. What he wanted Joshua to do is say, Lord, we obviously have sinned against you. Bring me revelation. When there's a problem in your life, we're supposed to seek the Lord. Because he's the one that can give revelation about why that's happening. Right? Instead of fighting against the circumstance, fighting against man, fighting against spouse or children, many times there's a spirit of discord or strife that's trying to cause confusion in your family. So instead of looking at your wife or your husband as the enemy, we need to see if there's a spiritual thing going on. Because you are not going to bind nor break a spiritual attack on your family if you're attacking your spouse, or you're attacking your son, or your daughter, or your boss. Amen? We need to see through spiritual eyes. We always need to remember that we do not fight against flesh and blood. Right? So if there's someone in our midst that there's friction in the body, in this body, and there's separation, our battle is not against the person. Our battle is against principalities and spirits that are trying to work through man to cause division. Isn't that right? That's why gossiping and slander never helps. That never brings unity because that can't break the bondage. That can't break the attack. That has no authority over principalities and spirits. Only intercessory prayer through a righteous vessel. That's what breaks the spirits. Amen? I've heard a lot of religious leaders say, you know, as far as with their spouse, there's always times we're going to have arguments and yell back and forth. Yeah, there probably is, but it doesn't have to be that way. If you can always remember that your spouse is, is on your side, that the devil tries to work through his unholy spirit, tries to work strife and discord in your family, because he understands very well that a man and a woman, at odds with each other, there is no power in that home. There is vulnerability in that home. 
There's vulnerability for them. There's vulnerability for the children. And he wants to take the top out. Top is mom and dad working together. There is nothing more powerful than a man and a woman praying together. Nothing, 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 nothing. The devil has a large agenda to keep man and woman from praying together. Because there is power in it. There is power. There is protection. There is anointing. There is covering in the home when a man and a woman pray together. So during the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord. The Lord said, here's the revelation. It is on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It is because he put the Gibeonites to death. The king, David, summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not a part of Israel, but were survivors of the Amorites. The Israelites had sworn to spare them, but Saul in his zeal, for Israel and Judah had tried to annihilate them. Verse 3 says, David asked the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? So here David understands there's a problem. He understood very well there is a problem going on here. There's a famine in the land. No doubt people are dying. He sought the Lord for the answer. The answer came essentially the same thing that was told to Joshua. There's sin in the land. So David asked the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? How shall I make amends so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? The Gibeonites answered him, we have no right to demand silver or gold from Saul or his family nor do we have the right to put anyone in Israel to death. What they are saying here is we can't take the initiative. David, as representative of the people of God, you must take the initiative. What do you want me to do for you, David asked. They answered the king, As to the man who destroyed us and plotted against us, so that we have been decimated and have no place anywhere in Israel, let seven of his male descendants be given to us to be killed and exposed before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the Lord's chosen one. So the king says, I will give them to you. The king spared Mahibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath before the Lord between David and Jonathan, son of Saul. But the king took Aromai and Mahibosheth, which is a different one, the two sons of Ai, daughter of Rizpah, whom she had borne to Saul, together with the five sons of Saul's daughter, Mirab, whom she had borne to Adriel, son of Berizlai, and whatever that name is. <laughs> He handed them over to the Gibeonites who killed and exposed them on a hill before the Lord. All seven of them fell together. They were put to death during the first days of the harvest, just as the barley harvest was beginning. Jump down to verse 14. It says, They buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the tomb of Saul's father Kish at Zelah and Benjamin and did everything the king commanded. After that, God answered prayer in behalf of the land. You catch that? What do you think that prayer was? Remember, there's famine in the land. So after this process happened, now God was answering the prayers on behalf of the people. Amen? So remember Joshua chapter 9, the Gibeonites deceived the Israelites. The Gibeonites came to them and said that we heard of the great fame of your God and we traveled long distances. Look at our sandals are worn out. Our bread, it's moldy. It was fresh when we put it in. Please, we want to make a treaty with you. This is a very important verse that the Israelites did not inquire of the Lord. I mean, they took it at face value. They did not seek for discernment. They didn't ask God. They just made a treaty with them. God had already told them to not make treaties with people in the land. I have given you a commission to wipe out the land. Their sin, their cup of iniquity has risen full. I have come to allow you, by the power of my hand, to clean the nation, to clean the area, and inherit and possess it for my name. So they didn't inquire of the Lord. They sinned against the Lord, really. 
They made a treaty with the Gibeonites. And Saul later on would come and he would violate this treaty. And violating this treaty, this covenant with these people, caused destruction upon the land. And many people probably died because of that sin. And that's the process that we were going through right there. So he made them woodcutters and he made them water carriers. Now, can you see and you understand about the blood that had to be shed to cover the sins in the Old Testament? We'll get into the actual the animal sacrifices now. Point number two is Jesus is a sin offering and a guilt offering. Jesus is a sin offering and a guilt offering. Leviticus chapter 4, starting with verse 1, Leviticus 4, 1 through 5, 13, goes through and outlines sin offerings that were commanded by God to the Israelites. And I thought it was interesting because he describes different kinds of sin offerings that are being made for both priests, for the whole community of Israel, leaders, and members of the community. That's the four different types of people that he made exclusive kinds of sin offerings when they sinned against the Lord. The priest, the whole congregation as a corporate whole of Israel, leaders or elders, and an individual member in the community. And each time they made a sin, they had to go now to the temple and they had to offer an animal as a sin offering. And I thought it was interesting when I looked at the different animals that were required. For the priest who committed a sin, he had to present a bull. When you're presenting for the whole community of Israel, a bull was also required. When a leader committed a sin, it required a goat. And it's only for the member of the community, you or me would say, when we go, we can only ones that can offer that would be accepted a lamb. I thought that was interesting. Because when we look at the foreshadowing and what Jesus Christ is, he is what? The Paschal Lamb of God, the Lamb that was slain. He died for everyone. He didn't die just for the priest. He didn't die just for leaders. He didn't die just for the nation of Israel. He died for everyone. Amen? And how interesting it is that it's only the member, the individual, the one person who's not a leader, just the ordinary Joe. They're the only ones that are offered the possibility of, a, of offering a lamb. I thought that was interesting. Praise the Lord for that. Hebrews chapter 13 says this. Hebrews 13, 12 tells us, And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through what? Through his own blood. John chapter 1, verse 29. I told you we're going fast. John 1, 29 the next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared. Who's he? Jesus appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him, there is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or knows him. See, Jesus has become a sin offering for us. You see, in the Old Testament, if you committed a sin, you just couldn't say, oh, Jesus, forgive me. Oh, God, forgive me. Oh, Yahweh, forgive me. You had to go and provide a sin offering. Now, I think one misconception that many people have is they think that just because you are called an Israelite, just because you were part of the community of Israel, that means that you had salvation and you had ever, everlasting life. I don't believe that. I believe it's in Romans chapter 9 or 10, where Paul says that all Israel is not Israel. 
Paul understood that this because you call yourself something, that doesn't mean you have everlasting life. God has not changed. Just because you say, I'm a Christian, that doesn't mean you're born again. Anyone can call themselves a Christian. God isn't going to judge you based on what you say from your mouth. He's going to judge your hearts. He knows if you're a Christian. He knows, really, if you're born again. He knows if you have stepped off the throne of your life and invited Jesus to be on the throne of your life. It doesn't matter if you call yourself a Christian. Just like in the Old Testament, it doesn't matter if you call yourself a Jew, a Hebrew, or an Israelite. All Israel is not Israel, and believe me, all Christians are not Christians. Amen? (laughs) Many will come in my name. So Jesus became a sin offering. So I believe that if people didn't follow the ways of God, the ways of God was what? If you sinned against the Lord, you were to present a sin offering. So if you presented a sin offering in faith, believing that that sin offering, if you're a leader, it was a bull. If you were a priest, it was a bull. If you're just a regular guy like me, perhaps it was just a lamb. But if you did it in faith, because what? The righteous always live by what? They always live by faith. That has not changed. The righteous live by faith. Martin Luther didn't make that up, you know. The backup says it clearly. The righteous live by faith. God has always required faith. He has always required faith. He has never been excited about religious festival, about external stuff, but on an inward chain. If you sinned back in the Old Testament and you presented your lamb, here you go, God, but there was no change in the heart, no repentance in the heart. He didn't accept it. Amen? He doesn't accept it. If you sin today, and you say with your mouth, Oh Lord, forgive me, but in your heart you're not really meaning it. He doesn't accept it. He only accepts the one who comes, who really is repentant, who really does want to turn from their wickedness, who really does want to make it right. One of the proofs that we make it right with God is we make it right with our brother and our sister. We make it right with our spouse, our children, when we sin against them. That is oftentimes is the proof, the external proof, that really in your heart you are repentant. God always requires faith. Jesus has become our sin offering. And that's just the basic tenet of the Christian faith, amen? He has become our sin offering. Number point two is, He has become our guilt offering. Let's turn quickly back to Leviticus chapter 6. Leviticus chapter 5, verses 14 through 19. Leviticus chapter 6, verses 1 through 7 goes over the areas of a guilt offering. I want to bring out a couple of points. Some of the sins that are included in this guilt offering. When one sins unintentionally in regard to the Lord's holy things. When a person does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands. Chapter 6 and verse 1, deceiving his brother about something entrusted to him. Verse 3 of chapter 6, finds lost property and lies about it, swears falsely. Verse 4, when he thus sins and becomes guilty, he must return. Verse 6 says, and as a penalty, he must bring to the priest, that is, to the Lord. That is interesting. When you bring it to the priest, the priest is what? Simply a go-between between man and God, right? And so when you're going and presenting your offering, you're not presenting it to the priest as if he can forgive your sins. It's not like you're going to Father, I'm saying that in a very Catholic sort of way, as if he can forgive your sins. He only can acknowledge what God has acknowledged in heaven. That is a misconception in the Catholic Church, as if man can forgive sins. May it never be. But man only can acknowledge when a person has met the conditions of God. Right? So you can confess to man, and that's good. But man can never forgive your sins. Man only can acknowledge the fact that Jesus has forgiven you. And as a penalty, he must bring to the priest, that is to the Lord, his guilt offering, a ram from the flock. In this way, the priest will make atonement for him before the Lord. And he will be forgiven for any of these things he did that made him guilty. 
So this is the guilt offering. And I'm saying that Jesus has become our guilt offering. The damages and transgressions against the world, against the Lord's things, against our neighbor, Jesus has become that guilt offering. One thing that's important to remember is a guilt offering will be complete when amends are paid. That is important. A guilt offering will be complete when amends are paid. What does that mean? Turn to Isaiah chapter 53. That's a famous chapter, isn't it? When I found this, I was excited. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5 says this, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace. Ooh, isn't that a good word? The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. So who are we talking about here in Isaiah 600 years before Jesus Christ? We're talking about a prophetic utterance about the work of Jesus Christ. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that has brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Look at verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And through the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. He will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Isn't that beautiful? When you sinned against the Lord, when you sinned against your brother or sister, you had to prevent a guilt offering because you were guilty. But 600 years before Jesus Christ, Isaiah would prophesy and say there's going to be one that is sent. And really has already been sent. Because it says, I believe in the book of Hebrews, that before the foundations of the world, God sent His Son. This is why it can speak in this context of the present tense of something that was going to happen literally 600 years later. Because in the eyes of God, in the eyes of the Holy Spirit, it has already been accomplished. Amen. He said, He will become your guilt offering. That's the prophetic foreshadowing. Let's look at the fulfillment in Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 2. Ephesians 5 and 2 says this, I'll start with verse 1. Be imitators of God, therefore as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Amen? We can be imitators of God only because that Jesus Christ gave himself up to be a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That is the fulfillment. We looked at Leviticus, that when you were guilty... You had to give an offering. You had to present an animal to be slain, to cover your guilt, to cover your sin. Isaiah would prophesy a time that Jesus Christ would come and he was allowed to be crushed and become a guilt offering for you. And Ephesians 5 verses 1 and 2 show us that Jesus Christ was a fulfillment of the guilt offering in Jesus. Point number three says, Jesus redeemed us who died in sins and transgressions. Remember the story of Lazarus? Lazarus was given life after being dead for four days, right? Lazarus, come forth! Now, one thing that's important to remember is that many of the miracles that Jesus did, he did them more than just to show the fact that he wanted that person healed. He wants people to be healed. He wants people to be set free. But when he came and he set people free, when he rebuked devils, what he was saying is, I am God. I can cast out devils. I have the authority and the power to do it. When he healed people, 
It was more for their comfort. He wanted to show who he was. And when he raised Lazarus from the dead, he was doing more than trying to give a few extra years to a buddy. He was trying to show something, spiritually and figuratively. It shows that Jesus gave life to the one who died in sins and transgressions. Jesus was doing more than giving a few extra years to Lazarus. We know Lazarus, what? He died again, didn't he? He died again. Resurrection is only for a certain amount of years. Jesus was trying to portray more than just a few extra years. He was trying to say that this man was dead and now he's alive. And now by his death, by him being a sin and a guilt offering for me and you, we were dead, but now we're alive. It's about resurrection power, more than just physical, but spiritual resurrection and power. Being born again. You'll find the story of Lazarus in John chapter 11. But look at this, Ephesians chapter 2. You should already be at Ephesians. I like this. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 says this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions. Remember, we're looking at this verse through the story of Lazarus. The fact that Jesus was doing far more than given a few years, he was trying to make a point about death spiritually and resurrection being born again. As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are of disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we are by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. Hallelujah. It is by grace you have been saved. Verse 6, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. This is really what Jesus was getting at right here with the raising of Lazarus. It was more than just a sign or a wonder. He was communicating that by him, he is the perfect sin offering and guilt offering for you. He paid the debts so that you can be resurrected with him and placed in heavenly places. Praise the Lord. But one thing we've got to remember is Jesus said more than just Lazarus, rise up, come forth. He also said, and it describes that Lazarus came out of the tomb and he was covered with what? He was covered with grave clothes and it says his hands were bound and he had things around his head. Yes, he was risen. He was once dead, but now he's alive. But it said right after that, and he came out, and his hands were bound. He was wrapped in grave clothes. His head was covered. And he said something that's very important. He looked around the people. They were probably shocked. Can you imagine? Four days dead? He stunk. Four days dead. I think in my Bible college days, I read something about the Old Testament, about the times of Jesus, that there's a certain amount of time where you can pray for the dead. And it was one less than four. This is symbolic. This is important. Jesus, remember what happened when Jesus was first approached about the fact that Lazarus is sick? Remember what he did? Did he run quickly over to to Bethel? No, he says he went and went and ministered somewhere else for a couple more days. Bethany. Why? 
Because Jesus had something in mind here with the raising of Lazarus. He didn't want Lazarus sick. He didn't want Lazarus dead one day, nor two days, nor three days. He wanted him dead four days. Because everyone knew that you don't pray for anyone that's been dead four days. He's rotten. He stinks. Jesus was trying to make a point. I am what? And the life. Praise God. His timing is always perfect, friends. His timing is always perfect. You may feel a little heat in your life. And you're like, Lord, I don't like the heat. And Jesus may just say, for your good, it might get a little hotter for a few more days. But I will come and I will pour down rain and showers of blessing in my time. Jesus waited because he wanted to show that declaration, I am the resurrection and I am the life. He who believes in me, though he what might die, he will what? He shall live again. Do you think he was just talking about a physical resurrection for body's sake? That when Brother Marlowe, if he collapses someday and I can just pray for him and he might... No, he was so much more interested in your spiritual condition. He's never interested just in your physical body. He's far more interested in your soul. Almost everything he did, every application is spiritual about your soul. He's interested. He died for your soul. He died for everlasting life. Praise the Lord. That's exciting. So Lazarus rose from the dead. He came out bound, it says. Grave clothes on. People were probably pretty amazed. And he says, what? Take off those grave clothes and let him go. He was alive. He was resurrected. You're alive and you're resurrected. Amen? Amen. But you know what? We still have grave clothes on. We still have areas where we're bound up just a little bit. We still have things that are wrapped around our heads so we can't see quite as clearly as we need to see. The grave clothes represent what? The old carnal man. The old carnal nature. Right? And what are we commanded to do for one another? We are commanded to go to one another and what? Release them. Take off those grave clothes. Go love one another. We're not supposed to go and just point out, oh, look at Nancy's grave clothes. Look at her flesh rise up. You know? Do you know how often we do that? I mean, I'm right here. Guilty. Guilty. I'm guilty. I do that. There's times where my flesh, my wife, will get agitated and start going in the flesh, and I'll like be like Ham, exposing Noah. Come and look! <laughs> yeah, I'll do that in my heart. I'll say something like, wow, that's kind of a fleshy comment. That's not what we're called to do. We're not called to say, oh, look at, look at Brother Marlowe's flesh rising up over there. I know I'm called to what? I'm called to take off the grave clothes. I'm to come and break that bondage. How do we do that? We do it with love. Is love always easy? No. Love can be hard. Love might require me to see a sin in a brother or sister and me have to go and take them aside and present that to them. That's not easy. No one wants to do that. We want to avoid even the realm of conflict. But we so love each other. We're so not wanting people to be bound up with grave clothes. We want them to see clearly. We want them to be able to be free to allow the glory of God to be fully released in our life that we're willing to go to the brother or sister because we love them. Amen? We can be free when we take off the clothes of transgressions against our brothers and sisters. When we have transgressions, things that we've done against a brother or sister, we can be free when we take off the clothes of transgression. Remember the story of Zacchaeus? <laughs> now, if you ever have children, as soon as you hear that name, you think of something. A song. You know, Zacchaeus was a... My wife could do the whole thing. And a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree. It's a good song, eh? Zacchaeus, you everyone remember what Zacchaeus' profession was? Tax collector. 
What did the Jewish people think about tax collectors in those days? They're not even worthy of picking off the bottom here. You know what I'm saying? If you, you know, like, they're like, when you get that gum that's like lodged in your shoe and you're, you know, it's like, you just don't even want it on the bottom of your shoe. You don't even want it on the bottom of the shoe. Remember that story though? This is a good story. Now when we sing the song, we talk about a little man in the tree. <laughs> but there's better, there's more to the story. He's a tax collector, he's the scum of the earth. Zacchaeus, you come down. For where you're going to your house today. Amen? Jesus said, I'm going to your house, brother. Scum of the earth. So he went to the house. And he wasn't too popular for doing it. The religious folks, the leaders, looked at him and said, what are you doing eating with that sinner, that scum? Remember what Zacchaeus said? Zacchaeus met Jesus Christ. Zacchaeus recognized in that fellowship when Jesus came to him that he was a sinner and he needed a savior. And right in front, the religious leaders, right in front, can you imagine a bunch of religious leaders coming to your house and saying, Jesus, what are you doing with a scumbag? Right in front of them. And Zacchaeus says, pricked in the heart, he says, from now on, I'll give half my wealth to the poor. And anyone that I have cheated, I will pay back to him even four times what I stole. Amen? When we encounter Jesus, we make amends to our brothers and sisters. Not just even keel, but even four times what you robbed from them. What you robbed from them? Well, probably in most of our circles it's not money, but maybe their character. Maybe you robbed them with your tongue. Gossip and slander. How are you going to make that up? You love them. You go to them, and you take off the grave clothes of your transgression against them. And you make it right. You see how the Spirit of God is working today? See how Brother Tom opened our service after worship? Do you really love? Do you really love God? If so, we'll see it through how you love one another. That's not my words, that's just the gospel. How will the world know that you're my disciples? They will know by how you love one another. Not human love, the agape love that only comes from Jesus Christ. So we are to take off the grave clothes of transgression. I won't go into it too much, but the Bible will support the fact that those people that are wearing the grave's clothes of transgressions against each other, they are constantly accused by the devil. Why? Because you have given them permission by your accusation, by the fact that you have a problem and ill with your brother or your sister, your spouse, your children. I want to read quickly in support of that. Something I think it's very interesting. Zechariah chapter 3. This talks more about the principle of grave clothes. Chapter 3, starting in verse number 1. It says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan. So who is uh, Zechariah seeing in this vision? He's seeing Joshua the high priest, and Satan, standing at his right side, to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Hallelujah. I, I can relate. I am the burning stick snatched from the fire. I'm the one that was dead in the grave in my transgressions, like Ephesians says. I was destined as a child to wrath because of my sins. Yet God would come as my sin offering, as my guilt offering, and he would snatch me from the pit of hell. I was smoldering, but he did not snuff me out. I was bruised, but he would not break me. 
Now Joshua is dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes! Isn't this good? Doesn't this sound very similar to the Lazarus story? The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. You see, the clothes represented what? His sin. When the clothes are removed, he says, See, as the clothes, the dirty, filthy clothes, as they're removed, I have taken away your sin. When Lazarus was dead and rose again, it was representative that what? Jesus is taking away sin. He has come. He is the life. He is the resurrection. He is the power and the salvation. Now go take off his grave clothes because I have made him a new creation. Behold, all things have passed away and new things are coming to that man. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin and I will put rich garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge on my courts. And I will give you a place among those standing here. See, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He is always in the business of taking away filthy garments. He is always in the business of taking away graves' clothes that represent what's old, what's not of his nature. We are to be facilitators of taking off grave clothes. When someone becomes born again, they are still bound, they are still covered in graves' clothes. I just wrote an article about discipleship, and I used this analogy because this is what's missing in the church today. Without discipleship, we can never take off grave clothes. So what do we have? We have a bunch of people that are resurrected and walking around in grave clothes. And we look at them and we can see their grave clothes and we, see, and we kind of say to ourselves, man, that person, good night. That filthy carnal nature. God's saying, go and love my sheep, feed my sheep. Take off the grave clothes. Go minister to them, love them. Go to their house. I don't care if it has stuff in the house or it stinks or has things that represent the things of this world. Behold, he was dead, now he's alive. Go and take off his grave clothes. Go in the ghettos, go in the highways and byways. Go and feed him, clothe him in garments that are radiant, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, discipleship. Second point about people that are wearing grave clothes of transgressions, not only are they accused by the devil, just like Joshua the high priest was being accused by the devil, but also they have a wall between them and God. Meaning that our carnal nature does cause a problem in our relationship with God, doesn't it? Just because you're born again doesn't mean you have now this tremendous revelation and tremendous communication with God. This is why it's so important to go and minister to one another, to love one another. Because we want people hearing from God. We want people to have intimacy with Jesus. If they have grave clothes of deception upon them, their hands are bound in the things of this world, they're not going to hear Jesus. So we are commissioned as brothers and sisters to take off the clothes of transgression against each other and pray on the basis of reconciliation. Everything that we do in our Christian life is based on the foundation of reconciliation. That is the one thing that's different about the Christian religion. 
where all religions, man is trying to pursue and go to God. Christianity, God came to us. God came to reconcile mankind. And so he says, if you want a relationship with me now, it's all based on reconciliation with people around you. If you won't reconcile, I won't hear you. If you won't forgive one another, then I can't forgive you. It's all based in reconciliation. There's many verses that support this. Matthew chapter 18. Remember, that's the famous chapter about church restoration. If a brother sins against you, grumble and complain to it about your wife. If a brother sins against you, go to him. Right? Go and confront that brother or sister in love. Why? Because if you think that person has sinned against you, then you're supposed to go and minister and take off the grave clothes. Not to show that you're right. That's a wrong motivation. Because you don't want that person in grave clothes. Because you know that the grave clothes of that sin that they have caused against you will hinder the relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why you go. That's your motivation. Reconciliation and restoration. Because you know if that human relationship, that horizontal relationship is reconciled, then they have a vertical relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen? That's our motivation. That's church restoration, Matthew chapter 18. And one Christian verse that we like to say over and over again is, where two or three are gathered together in my name. But that only comes after church restoration. You can have all the people to gather together in his name you want. But if you don't have reconciliation, if you have people that are disgruntled against each other, man, wife, it doesn't matter how many people you have in his name. you got to read the context of the verse. First go to your brother. Go to the one that sinned against you. Make amends with him. And then when two or three are gathered in my name. What's that mean in his name? In his very character. His character is not strife and discord, jealousies, backbiting, gossip. In my name. In my character. In my essence. Who I am. That's why you have to go first to your brother or sister. Make amends. And then when you come together, then there's power. This church is going to have power because we are going to do it his way. We are going to make amends with our horizontal relationships. God's going to be speaking to us, speaking to me, about our horizontal relationships. He's going to start speaking to you about it. And you are going to act in faith, in accordance with the Word of God. Obeying the Word of God is faith. And so you're going to be working in faith, and you're going to go to your brother, your sister, your husband, your wife, your child, your neighbor. And you are going to go, and you're going to make amends. You're going to go to them. And you're going to take off their grave clothes. And they're going to take off yours. And then together when we pray, the power of God is going to come down. Amen? I'll finish with the verse, James chapter 5. Verse 15 says, In the prayer offered in faith, what did we just say faith was? Faith is adherence to the Word of God. So I'll put that in there. In the prayer offered in accordance to the Word of God, will make the sick person well, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. Take off the grave clothes for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Now, we could spend a lot of time on that verse and we won't, but that's the essence of it. It's the prayer offered by a righteous person, one who's in right standing with the will of God. Amen? Christ came to be our sin offering and our guilt offering. And now we are to go and to minister out of the love of Jesus Christ because he has placed it within us to love one another. We are not to backbite, we are not to gossip or to slander, but we are to go 
Throughout the Bible, God has always commissioned man to go. Go to your erring brother. Go to the one that sinned against you. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. We are to go. When you find yourself standing too much, when you find yourself sitting too much, you're usually in error because he has commanded you to go. We are to go to take off the clothes, the grave clothes of the carnal nature on man. Praise the Lord. Today, I know the Lord's been speaking to us about these areas. I believe that there's many that are sick in the body of Christ, and perhaps even in our body here, that have perhaps emotional or physical problems that sometimes are related to our relationship to our brother or our sister. Amen? And a lot of times we can say, Lord, heal me, Lord, heal me, Lord, heal me. But the Lord's saying, I want to heal you. Make it right with your brother or your sister. And so today as we come forth to the altar, I want you to allow Jesus to speak to you about your horizontal relationships. I want you to realize that he has become your guilt offering and your sin offering. I want you to bless his name for it. I want you to be so filled with the love of Christ that you're so unwilling to have any odds against the brother or sister. That's what it comes down to. Being so encapsulated and so in awe of the love of Christ that he would save a wretch like you and I, that you're not even willing to hold a grudge, a sin against a brother or sister. Amen? I'm going to have tomorrow just play the piano. Let's spend a few minutes. Let's do business with God. I believe in doing business with God. God is going to meet you by faith. If you by faith come up here today and present your request to God, He is going to meet you right here. He's going to meet you right here as you walk in faith and obedience. Pastor Tom and myself, we're simply going to come and maybe lay hands and just pray a blessing over you. Well, let's do business with God today. I want this to be a powerful and effective church. It will only be powerful and effective if we do business with God. Let's come to the altar. I invite you to come and spend as long as you need in the presence of God. Amen. Worship Him. Thank Him. And ask Him to help you to do what you're supposed to do. And He will bless you. Let's be like the people around Joshua and the people around Lazarus. Let's be people who don't expose the shame of our brothers or sisters, but we uncover them and then cover them with the love of Jesus Christ. Amen? Remember the fate of the three sons of Noah? When Noah sinned and lay drunk in his tent, Ham came in first. And Ham went to his other brothers and said, go look at foolish dad in the tent, laying naked in the tent, drunk. And the two other brothers would not play the game. And so they took a sheet to cover, and they walked in backwards. They didn't want to look at their father's shame. They didn't want to expose it. And they covered their father's shame. They covered. They didn't expose. Amen? We are to cover the sins of our brothers and sisters, not expose them. Cover them with the love of Jesus Christ. If it causes you to have to go and to confront them, that's covering with the love of Jesus Christ. What is not covering them is not going. To leave them with the grave clothes on of deception. Amen? But we are commanded to release, to uncover, to put beautiful garments on. Amen? We've all sinned in this way. We're all guilty. This message is not for one or two. It's for all. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all failed to go to a brother. We've all grumbled about a brother or a sister. But he is your sin offering. He is your guilt offering. Come and do business with God here. Come and ask him to reveal to you hope and faith to do what is right. Because when we meet the conditions of God, 
we're going to see mighty miracles in this place. Amen? When it comes to God, who is a miracle-working God, He's a miracle-working God, isn't He? He's a God who wants to do signs and wonders. If signs and wonders aren't happening, it's not because Jesus Christ doesn't want the signs and wonders. It's because there's sin in the camp. If we're being defeated by the enemy, it's because there's sin in the camp. Amen? If we want to see signs and wonders, we got to deal with this situation. we got to deal with our hearts. we got to deal with our pride and our arrogance. We have to deal with it. He won't make you deal with it. You, he will, you can be a resurrected saint and walk the rest of your life in graves closed. He will allow that to happen. Sure, you'll go to heaven. But he has so much more. My Bible says that he came to give life and life more abundance. That's going to require supernatural healings upon bodies. That's going to require people to be broken of their depression, of their anxieties and their fears. That's going to have to happen for life more abundance. Because if you're bound up in depression, life is not abundance. If you have a physical ailment in your life, that is not abundant life. If we want to see abundant life in our midst, then we have to deal with our hearts. Ask the Lord to forgive you today. Ask the Lord to give you the courage and the boldness to do what it says in the Bible to do. Take off the grave clothes that cover our brother in shame with the love of Jesus. Thanks for listening to this episode of Warning Radio with Dr. Jonathan Hansen, founder and president of World Ministries International. Warning Radio is a listener-supported program. We need your donations in order to continue airing these Christ-centered prophetic programs. Send your checks or money orders to World Ministries International, Post Office Box 277, Stanwood, Washington, 98292. To donate securely by phone, call 360-629-5248. Visit our website to find other ways of giving and a wealth of information about World Ministries International and host Dr. Jonathan Hansen. The website is worldministries.org. There, you'll also have access to hundreds of previously aired radio programs, made-for-television videos, thousands of articles, Dr. Hansen's books, and travel itinerary. Again, the website is worldministries.org. The phone number is 360-629-5248. Remember, the Lord is not slow about the promise of His return, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for everyone to come to the repentance that leads to eternal life.